Uh, So if you have Bibles, uh, please make your way to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 23, specifically, uh, is where we're going to be today. And Rachel mentioned those hardcover uh, black Bibles that are under the seats near you. If you're using one of those, you'll find Genesis 23 on page number 16. Just a small couple of questions for you on this beautiful Sunday morning. How should we value the eternal versus the temporal? How should we value the, the spiritual as compared to the material? There are two, and I think what Nate was saying just a moment ago has a lot to do with this as well. Uh, there are two incredibly damaging errors that Christians are prone to make when we wrestle with these big questions like that. One is to become so consumed with the temporal and the material and the circumstantial aspects of this life that we forget that ultimately we are eternal beings, as the author of Ecclesiastes said, written with eternity on our hearts. And we live our lives when we make this error as if this life is it, as if this is ultimate. And so the goal then of our lives becomes to maximize happiness, to maximize comfort uh, right now. The other error that we are prone to make as Christians, as it's been said, is to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. Uh, to exclusively emphasize the eternal, to the neglect of the material and the temporal. And this idea uh, doesn't come, as it's sometimes wrongly assumed, from a Jesus-centered or a gospel-centered view of the world. It comes instead from a Greek view of the world, a dualistic view of the world, which says that the material and the physical really are evil, the spiritual is really what is valuable, and so the definition of salvation becomes, let's escape the material prisons of this body and the material prisons of this world and live a completely spiritual life. In contrast to that, Christianity holds the spiritual and the material together, inseparably. And the gospel teaches us actually to be so eternally minded that we value the material, physical, present-day world more than anyone else. Not because this world is ultimate, but because it's it's God's physical creation. It's, It's the thing that God made and called good. And because Jesus, who is the eternally existent Son of God, took on flesh, physical, material flesh, to live and to dwell in this physical, material world. And because... It's this physical, material world that the eternal spiritual God is reconciling to himself through the work of Christ. So the book of Revelation, if you've ever dabbled into the book of Revelation, doesn't end uh, with Jesus shooting a proton torpedo down the exhaust shaft of the earth and watching it explode. Uh, The book of Revelation ends with the city, the new city, the new Jerusalem, eternal city of God, descending from heaven to here. And that's where Jesus makes his dwelling with his people for all of eternity. And what we learn from that that story, the story of God, the story we narrate and celebrate each week when we gather, is that the eternal promises of God take shape and they advance toward their fulfillment in this physical, material earth. When we're considering Revelation, we're talking about how the story ends. We've been in the book of Genesis, and that's much more toward the beginning of the story. But even here... As the account of this man of faith named Abraham nears the close, we only got a couple weeks left in this series, we see what it looks like for the people of God to, by faith, hold the spiritual and the material together, to hold the eternal and the temporal together. And in Genesis 23, what that looks like is a foreigner buying a field. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the book of Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. 
And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let, me give, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, may your word this morning be a lamp to our feet, as the psalmist says, and a light to our path. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We've been in the series for really the entire summer. We're wrapping up uh, in, a, in a week, really, from today. And we've seen Abraham fail spectacularly throughout his life in different ways. His faith falters many times. But yet, overall, Abraham is known and reflected on in the book of Hebrews as the man of faith. And what we see here in Genesis 23 are two evidences of his faith come together. The faith to be a foreigner and the faith to buy a field. And that's what we're going to talk about with the rest of our time that we have together this morning. So first, let's talk about the faith to be a foreigner. Genesis 23 begins, as you heard, with Sarah's death. And Sarah really is an incredible woman in the Bible. Consider her life and what we know of it. She was unable to have children until God miraculously gave her that ability at age 90. And then sometime between, uh, when her son was between the ages of 10 and 18, she had to watch Abraham take him off into the wilderness on a three-day journey, assuming that Abraham was going to sacrifice that son that she couldn't have till she was 90 to God. She was also given as a wife to another man, not once, but twice, also that Abraham could save his own skin. And she was provoked not once, but twice by her servant Hagar, by her servant Hagar's son, Ishmael. But before all of that, if we go all the way back to the beginning of when we first meet Sarah in the Bible, 
Sarah followed the lead of her husband, Abraham, out of what was also her homeland. That can get glossed over in this narrative. It was also, Ur was also her homeland. And she went, like Abraham did, to the land that God would show them. So it takes faith to live as a foreigner. It takes faith to live as a sojourner in a land that is not your home. And Sarah lived as a foreigner roughly half of her life. When they entered the promised land, she was somewhere around age 65. And as it says here, she dies at age 127. She dies, when she dies, she is a foreigner. She's in the land that God has promised to give her descendants. But at the time of her death, none of that land actually belongs to them. Next week, as we close this series, we'll look at the death of Abraham and all that was still unfulfilled when Abraham died. But even but consider this this morning. Sarah saw even less fulfillment. And it actually was the occasion of her death that became the first step of the fulfillment to God's promise that they would possess the land. As the author of Hebrews reflects back on Sarah's life, Abraham's life, in Hebrews 11, it says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is what it means to be eternally minded, to be spiritually minded, to not put all of your hope in the physical and material fulfillment of what your eyes can see and what you experience in this life, but instead to look to that eternal city, as the author of Hebrews says, whose designer and builder is God. At the time of her death, Abraham and Sarah are sojourners, foreign sojourners in the land of the Hittites. So, so think about this. These are, Abraham and Sarah, they are the recipients of these eternal promises of God, but they only in their lifetime get to experience small tastes or glimpses from afar of that fulfillment. And really what that does is it sets the tone for the lives of the people of God in all the generations to come, all the way up to and including this present day in which you and I live. We are people who by faith live as foreigners in the world. We are people who by faith are, as the author of Hebrews words it, strangers and exiles on the earth. I don't know when the last time you've had the opportunity to kind of step back and think about this. So I invite you to do that this morning. You were made for a greater glory that can only come from the fullness of the presence of God. That is true for every single person in this room. You were made for a glory that can only come from the fullness of the presence of God. And sin, your own sin, as well as the sin of the people around you, the people in this world, the sin of, of others, has marred and corrupted our ability to experience that fullness of the presence of God in this earth, in this life. And yet, Jesus is redeeming that. He entered into this physical material earth to redeem that. So some of this greater glory we will already get to taste in this life. There'll be real tastes, but they will be these glimpses from afar. And the rest is coming. That's the promise of God, but it is not yet. It will not fully be realized until Jesus comes again. And therefore, because that's the reality in which we live, between the already and the not yet, as those who have faith in Jesus, we should expect never to feel fully at home or fully settled in this life. Because of our own sin, because of the fracture that the sin of us and others creates, 
we should expect to be treated like a foreigner, like a sojourner in various ways throughout our lives. Just an example I heard of this recently, I was hanging out with uh, Will and Dana Kenny a week ago, and they were sharing with me a story about when they lived in Perry County. And after they lived in Perry County, this was already some years back, they lived there for a handful of years, I think it was around seven or eight years. A neighbor of theirs there was frustrated with them for some reason and left a rock at the end of their driveway with the words, we were here first, scratched into it. Hey, that's an extreme example. Um, That may never have happened to to you. Maybe it has happened to you. Um, But there are certain places where the guy who moved here 25 years ago is still the guy who moved here 25 years ago. And he's not ever there. He's not ever welcomed among the people. He's still the guy from out of town. Or, and I think this has a lot of implications for our cultural moment, where the man whose ancestors were brought here forcefully 200 years ago is still not one of us, because of the color of his skin. Right? If, you're, if you're a racial minority, you've almost certainly experienced this. And there are social circles, be they in neighborhoods or schools or at work, where you might always feel like an outsider. In addition to all of those things, which are significant, there's the reality that Christians live as foreigners in this world because our values, our purpose, our aim, our faith is fundamentally different from those who don't look to Jesus as the author and sustainer of all life. So it takes faith to be an outsider, to be a foreigner, a sojourner in this world. But Christians, to this we are called. To this we are called. And if we don't value the eternal spiritual things enough, if our lives make too much sense to people who only think about the temporal and the material, then something is off. The people of God hold the eternal and the temporal, the the spiritual and the physical, together. And it will take faith for you and I to persist and to persevere as foreigners in the world. We we are those who receive the eternal promises of God, yet only get these small tastes of fulfillment in this life. When you experience that, remember Sarah and remember Abraham, those who lived by faith as foreigners and sojourners in a land that was promised to them, but a land that they never possessed. And like Abraham and Sarah, remember, this is not our ultimate home, that we look forward like they do in faith to this eternal city whose designer and builder is God. And because of now, and I referenced this just a second ago, but because of this cultural moment in which we live, I feel uh, compelled to take that even a step further this morning. As Christians, what I've been talking about so far, our faith makes us foreigners. It also calls us to welcome foreigners. So in the eyes of God, immigrants, refugees, racial minorities, they are marginalized peoples worthy of dignity, of love, and compassion. And what we've seen in this whole story of the life of Abraham, when God established a people for himself, those people began as foreigners and sojourners in the world. And after Abraham, and after Isaac, and after Jacob, there's 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And then there's 40 more years wandering around in the wilderness. And then even when they possess the land, they never quite possess all of it. And then they're exiled to Assyria and to Babylon. And then there's another diaspora where they're scattered around the world when the Jerusalem temple falls in AD 70. And all the way to the present, to this day, Christians, many Christians, the spiritual family, the spiritual descendants of Abraham, are scattered, wandering people. They're persecuted, refugees. They're marginalized outsiders. 
Because that is who we are, identity-wise, by faith. We also, by faith, welcome foreigners. Some, some immigrants, some refugees, we consider those things, they are fellow Christians. I think that, that part of the conversation gets left out often. Some will become Christians, and there's really not a screening process in the world powerful enough to discern the heart of people and determine who those people are or are not going to be. Others are not Christians and won't become Christians. Even so, even if they are never counted among the people of God, God commands his people to welcome, to care for, to provide for the foreigner and the sojourner. Why? Exodus 21, Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 10, 1 Peter 1, because God's people were and God's people are foreigners and sojourners themselves. That's who we are, and therefore that's why we welcome others. So Christians, we, we have to remember our story. We have to remember the grace and the mercy that we need as foreigners in this world. And the grace and mercy that's been shown to us, to our ancestors, be they biological or you know, physical ancestors or our spiritual ancestors like Abraham and Sarah. We must remember how gracious and merciful God has been to us and offer that same grace and mercy to others. And I'm not saying in this, please don't hear this, that there aren't important questions and considerations. But I am saying unequivocally, that if this is not our primary lens, if this is not our primary consideration when we think about these important cultural moment topics like immigration, refugees, racial issues, and how we as the people of God in this time and place are called to treat those who are not like us and who aren't from where we are from, then we're not looking through the lenses of Scripture. We're, We're forgetting who we are. And I've been talking primarily about immigrants and refugees, but, but as white nationalism has now taken center stage these last 10 days and dominated all of the news cycles because of the tragedy of what happened in Charlottesville and then all of the rallies again that happened around the country yesterday, let's not miss this too. Our identity as exiles in the world needs to shape the way we think about race. There are important, distinct conversations that we have to have about race and immigration, And I have no desire to demean either of those by lumping them together. But what stands out to me and what has been for me as I've reflected on this these last 10 days, what's been tragic, uh, what's been maddening to me is how in the hearts of many there's a really incredibly evil common root. And that is hatred of people that are different than me and a sense of superiority because I was here first. And that might mean I was here first because centuries ago my ancestors got here before you did, which I would say to anyone who is white, like you were not here first, actually. If we read history, you were not here first. Or whether that means in the present day, I'm here now, and so keep, quote-unquote, those people out. There's evil in the hearts of humanity that fears and despises and hates what is different, what is foreign, and also hates then the foreigner who is the one created in the image of God, loved by God. So let's say, and let's be incredibly clear about this, as a church, as individuals, white nationalism is a sin, racism is a sin, xenophobia is a sin, and not because popular culture agrees, and not because your favorite celebrity agrees, but because these things are incompatible and inconsistent with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God whose heart is compassionate toward the sojourning foreigner. And so we were here first might be the way of the world. It is not the way of the kingdom of God. 
That's the faith it takes to be a foreigner, the faith it also takes to welcome foreigners. Let's talk about the other demonstration of faith that's highlighted here in Genesis 23, the faith to buy a field. Everything in this chapter from verse 3 on describes this legal process of Abraham buying a field in which to bury Sarah. And if that seems you know, boring uh, or insignificant or just like a lot of tedious detail that Abraham's throwing or that uh, the author of Genesis is throwing out here, think about what this illustrates. Consider this. Abraham, the man of faith, who looked forward to the eternal city of God, went through great pains to secure a physical, material place to bury the physical, material bones of his wife. So faith in eternal things means material action in the present, costly material action in the present. Faith in eternal things means you care about physical things like the land and like the bones of the people you love. This is the paradox of the people of God. Faith in eternal things means you actually care more about this time and place, not less. It means you care more about this time and place than someone who doesn't have faith in the eternal God. And there's a lot more that plays out in this exchange between Abraham and the Hittites than might be readily apparent. What's really encouraging to read when you look at this initially is that there's a lot of respect and deference on both sides. There's a lot of of bowing, uh, please hear me, back and forth between Abraham and the Hittites. And that speaks to God's favor on Abraham as a sojourner in this land. It speaks to the graciousness of the Hittites to welcome him uh, in that land. It speaks to Abraham's character. But at the same time, listen to how this unfolds. Abraham asks initially for property for a burying place. And the Hittites respond by offering him the choicest of their tombs. Essentially, hey, Abraham, we like you. We're glad you're here sojourning among us. Pick your spot to bury your wife. We'll give it to you for free. And it sounds really generous, and in some ways it is really generous. But it leaves out the most important part. Property, owning the land. Why? Because that would change Abraham's status. Then he would not just be a sojourner, he'd be a landowner. It's just like in the the shameful parts of our nation's history, why white men didn't want women or people of color to own property. That changes your status. It gives you rights, it gives you privileges that you otherwise don't have. So the Hittites' response here is a little bit like an old white guy at a country club giving a black waiter a really nice and generous tip and then turning around and voting down his membership. That's what the Hittites are doing here. It's like, we we like you. We're glad you're here. You just can't be a member. You can't own anything here. Doesn't that change your understanding of how Genesis 23 plays out? Abraham is not an ungracious sojourner. It's kind of ridiculous how much he has to insist, no, I want to pay it. No, it's free. No, I want to pay it. But he keeps doing it respectfully until he owns this land. Why? Because God's promise is that he will possess the land, that it will be rightfully his. And so he goes through great pains so that it will be rightfully his. The whole transaction is conducted in a legally binding way. That's the purpose of all the details. It's at the city gate with the decision makers of the Hittites all present. Full view of the public, paying full asking price, even though most scholars agree that asking price for that field and cave is exorbitantly high. The specific land is then described, and then in verse 17, it's made over, literally deeded over to Abraham in the presence of all the Hittite people. 
So it needed to be, and even verse 20 summarizes all of it again, it needed to be a historical record that this was not a favor, this was not a gift, but that this was Abraham's possession. Because now by possessing this field and this cave, it becomes the first step of the fulfillment of the promises of God. God's promises take tangible shape in the present. They take shape in flesh and blood. They take shape in land. They're not ethereal, exclusively eternal, exclusively spiritual matters. It's precisely because Abraham has his eyes fixed on eternity that Abraham buys a field and buries the body of his wife in the ground in Hebron. And it's why when he dies about 40 years after this, and when his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob die years after that, they and their wives are buried in this same cave. As Christians, fixing our eyes on eternity means we value this place more. It means we attribute greater worth and not less to the physical material world in which you and I live and work and play every single day. God has promised, as we, as we thought about earlier, that he's reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, that he's making all things new. And that is the promised future of God for this earth and for this country and for this state and for the Harrisburg region and for your neighborhood. So the way I've said it before as I've put these pieces together You have a place. This isn't it, and yet this is it. In other words, as citizens of the kingdom of God, your sojourners, your exiles, your foreigners in the world, your ultimate home is with God for eternity. But this place of sojourning and wandering is your place. It is, as the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, the time and the boundaries that God has determined for you. It is, as the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, his letter to the exiles in Babylon our calling to seek the peace and flourishing of this place where God has sent us. So what I would say to you men and women this morning, in faith, buy the field. Buy the field. In light of the eternal promises of God, take ownership for this time and place in which God has placed you. And for some, that will literally mean buying the field. Buy a home. Buy a piece of property. Put down roots deep here with a long view to love and to care for this region and its people. For many, buying the field will be figurative, but no less significant. Anchor yourself in a job. Anchor yourself in a church. Make a covenantal commitment to other men and women with whom you share this time and place. Yoke yourself together with them for the long haul. Do that for the glory of God and the good of the world. Anchor yourself in a community. And participate in things like neighborhood associations and borough council meetings and nonprofits and ministries that seek the flourishing of this place. Because God knows when we look around, we need more citizens of the kingdom of God invested in this region. Both leveraging what by the grace of God is beautiful and good and right about this place and at the same time pushing back what is dark and evil about this place. What is broken about this place, including where our own region suffers from things like racism and ethnocentrism and xenophobia. If the gospel were only about eternal and spiritual things, then maybe it would be fine to hide out, to to lob a few evangelism grenades over the wall, hope some people meet Jesus occasionally, and wait for Jesus to hit the eject button. Maybe that would be a, a viable way, a worthwhile way to live if that was true. It's not. The eternal promises of God take shape in the present So bind yourself to people and yoke yourself to a place and watch how your heart will be transformed by God as you do. How should we value the eternal and the temporal? How should we value the material 
and the spiritual. Because God created this world and called it good. Because Jesus, the eternal God, took on flesh and lived among us. And because God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, is redeeming the world, Christians are foreigners buying fields. We are foreigners buying fields. So Liberty Church, put faith, put in faith, put your roots down deep. Yoke yourselves to this place. Yoke yourselves to its people. May we have faith to live as foreigners in this world. May we have faith to buy fields. And in us and through us, may God advance his great work of redeeming this world from the fracture of sin. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess that we value the material and spiritual in an ultimate way at times, and we need to be reminded to fix our eyes on the eternal city. We also confess that sometimes we get so overwhelmed by what this world looks like and what it looks like to live faithfully in this physical material world that we'd rather just think about eternity and hit the eject button, hide out until that comes. Forgive us for these errors. May we be like Abraham, foreigners buying fields, with faith to live as a foreigner, even if we see very little or none of the fulfillment of your promises. At the same time, may we have faith to buy the field, to put our roots down deep, to seek the flourishing of this place which you have sent us. We desperately need your grace. We desperately need you, Holy Spirit, to sustain us in that endeavor, to point out and expose those places in our heart which war against this faithful calling to be foreigners buying fields. So please do that miraculous work in us. Use us as well. We pray that your church would be an effective and transformative community of people in this world and in specifically in this region, in our neighborhoods. And as we come today to this table, we are reminded, Jesus, you have purchased for us the redemption of this world. You have purchased for us an eternal home with you. So strengthen us as we come and send us back out into this physical material world you love. We pray this in your name. Amen.